Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You're listening to Nakedly Examined Music, a podcast about songs and songwriting. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer. For more information about this podcast, please see nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. My guest for episode 41 is Glenn Mercer, best known for his work with The Feelies, a New Jersey band that put out four albums between 1980 and 1991. You're right now listening to The Feelies' The High Road, the opening track from 1986's The Good Earth. They're a big influence on bands like R.E.M. Glenn was the guitarist, singer, main songwriter for that. In the 90s, he put out three albums with a band called Wake Ulu. released a solo album in 2007, which served as the ramp-up to getting the feelies back together in 2011. We will be talking about Been Replaced and Gone, Gone, Gone from the new album, 2017's In Between. We'll then talk about his 2015 solo album, Incidental Hum, and you'll hear the song Laramie. And we'll wrap up by looking back to the 2011 album Here Before, the song is Should Be Gone. For more information, please check out thefeeliesweb.com. So I will have played during my opening spiel the intro to The High Road from The Good Earth, 1986. The first song we're going to play in full here is from the, the recent album, 2017's In Between. Do you want to say a little bit about the bridge between those two, the many years? Between The High Road and the new record? Yeah, in other words, you established the high road, even though that's your that's, second album. I, I know. could go anywhere with that. I mean, <laughs> well, I, I know you basically established your sound on that record and the lineup that is still persists today. And you know, you recorded a few albums at the time up to '91, and then took a long break. And but I heard this is the first. The new album is the first one that. Am I right that you came in with all the songs yourself? You didn't co-write them all with Bill. Is that right? No, there were uh, co-writes. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's more co-writes percentage-wise on this record than in a while. So I thought I'd heard you describe, maybe it was one of the other guys, I listened to a, another podcast by a friend of mine, the one that you guys did, about the Good Earth album with the Jughead's Basement podcast, where he actually interviewed all of you about the Good Earth in turn. So I'm kind of not remembering who said what on that album, but one of you had described the band is kind of like some people get together and play poker. We get together and do music. Does that sound familiar? It sounds familiar. Um, it might have been Dave who said that. I mean, that's not totally accurate. Obviously, we put a lot of work into it. The social aspect is a big part of it. But, you know, a lot of it is the uh, expression of creativity and connection with other people, with the audience. So we don't want to make it sound too casual either. So how does that work, though, with Bill still lives in Florida or did he move back? Yeah, Bill is still in Florida. Okay, so how does that work with co-writing now? You just do that when you get together or? No, we exchange through the mail, CDs through the mail. Ah, the actual mail. Okay. Let's introduce, let's get to the first song pretty quickly here, Been Replaced. Tell me a, a little about what this is about and how this one came about. Well, I had the music just very spontaneously, I guess, came up with the line, the radio on. And then in turn, that sort of sparked, you know, an idea about what's going on with the radio. I don't know. It's meant to be tongue in cheek, to be honest. It's kind of, I find it a little ironic and a little funny. 
I think it's worth noting that within a few days of writing the lyrics, I heard on the local radio, Egyptian Reggae by Jonathan Richmond, Modern Lover. So yeah. I kind of had to eat my words. Like, I didn't mean it, you know, just kind of joking here. Obviously, there's good stuff on the radio, but I guess just sort of reflecting back to uh, a period that's no longer there. All right. Well, so if you had the basic riff here, how was this a co-write? How did this evolve? That's not a co-write. That's uh, one and I wrote. Okay. So yeah, what you're saying about the tongue in cheek, I mean, there are several places on this album. The whole thing is, for the most part, very relaxed, but just starting off with a yeah, 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 like these rock gestures, like you've got on uh, Flag Days, another one on here, the hey now, hey now, come on, baby, like lyrics that would normally be, you know, in a 1970s hyperactive rock song, but here they are at about half the speed, just kind of, yeah, <laughs> I like that 
twist on the classic rock cliche? Well, it's just spontaneous, you know, just sing whatever pops into your head. Sometimes you'll change it. Sometimes something will just stick in your head. You can't really get rid of it. It just seemed to fit. It wasn't intentional to evoke any particular anything, really. Well, so how about the arrangement here on Been Replaced? I mean, I definitely notice we're going to, for our third song, talk about one of the songs from Incidental Home, your solo album, which I believe was the first one that you did all the instruments yourself, right? Yeah. Okay. So a lot of the gestures on that in terms of, let's put a recorder here. Let's put two layers of Ebo. I'm hearing more on the new record than I was on previous things. Is that, are you still basically playing this live as a group? I think you hit on something that's worth talking about, which is, I'm just personally speaking here, but when approaching the writing of the new songs, I did feel inspired by the instrumental record in that it wasn't performance-oriented. We found that with the last record, we had 13 songs and five records out at that point, and we had plenty of songs to pick from when we play live, even when we play three hours, we still have to leave stuff out. In the last record, we also, there are some songs on that that we've never performed live. So the idea was, well, we don't necessarily have to perform these songs. We can kind of go off in any way we want, try to be a little more experimental about it and try to create different moods and have each song like, you know, evoke a certain atmosphere and just try to capture a variety of vibes, keep a coherent aspect to it, but also to be able to go in different directions. So was the idea that you would just figure out when you're done with the records, you know, how how things are coming out in terms of what's going to actually work as a live thing and which is just going to stay a studio jam? I mean, we could play any of the songs live. We recorded them basically all performing live, but some are more suited for live than others, I guess. I know it's often the case that the ones that are especially ballady not that you have many super ballads, but like I noticed When to Go, the song right, right before this, is just a really nice, quiet one. Is that the kind of thing that you'd be less likely to do live than one of these more catchy ones? Yeah, probably. That, that's that got a lot of stuff going on, um, layers, and it's got keyboard. So, But you know, we won't really know until we start kind of going through them and trying different things and hoping to do some acoustic shows as well. So that might open the door to a different possibility for us. So on Been Replaced, when you've got something like this, the recorder is an interesting little layering bit here, because it sounds like a recorder that you might add yourself to a solo tune. You know, I do the same thing. I play a lot of instruments against myself, and I'm just like, okay, I want I want an extra texture there, so I'll get something that just makes a noise. I don't necessarily have to know how to play it, particularly. Like, the person playing a recorder here does not sound like a skilled, experienced recorder player, but it's a really cool effect. When I first started uh, messing around with the recorder, the idea was to, uh, I noticed they had sonic similarities to feedback. It's pretty hard in a studio situation to get any kind of semi-controlled feedback uh, from a guitar. So the idea was to kind of add certain frequencies that might suggest that. So I guess when that part comes in, it's not recreating that, but it's sort of suggesting it, I think. Well, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it kind of goes with some of the other... Uh, we're going to hear more on Gone, Gone, Gone than this on the second song, how you have these kind of wall of noise distortion things, but they sit very comfortably 
next to an acoustic guitar. Like they're not any louder. It's just so it's like you've got your big amp sound that really should be blasting out, but somehow is it just the how you're mixing it and using compression or is it in the room? So do you think in terms of like, I'm playing loud rock and roll, but none of it's actually loud. That's the impression I'm getting here. Yeah, there are a lot of different reasons why the record sounds the way it does. Uh, this particular room where we recorded has a lot of characteristics that we kind of wanted. That's why we decided to work here. But it's also the way it's mixed. We spent a lot of time uh, trying different paintings and, uh, and the arrangements. We wanted to make sure parts didn't kind of overlap. Everything had its own unique space and didn't compete too much with each other. And I guess what you said was um, the juxtaposition of the acoustic and the electric that Almost the impetus for the song right from the start, I guess. Probably I started on acoustic, but heard it on electric and liked it both ways, so combined them together. Yeah, there's a lot more hard panning on this album that I than I would normally expect, which is nice. You know, well, I was going to say it's good enough for the Beatles, but no, that's like people after the fact that that mix the Beatles records in a strange stereo way. Well, I think a lot of it too is a reaction to the way records are made nowadays. They're so, uh, I guess, geared for the radio or for people driving, or I'm not sure what, but it's like heavily compressed, mm -hmm. very uh, almost mono. It's just um, the dynamic range is very narrow in its scope, and we wanted to kind of do the opposite of that. Just even something like normally when you mix a drum set, I do this. You have stereo overheads and, and you wave the toms around as if you were sitting wearing headphones. You're actually sitting at the drum kit, which is never what you actually hear when you're live. You're not sitting at the drum kit unless you're the drummer. So it kind of makes more sense. And especially since you guys have the drummer and the percussionist that you would put the whole kit kind of off to one side and then put the sleigh bells off to the other side. We don't have so much of that here. That was uh, a very conscious decision right before we even started that we would go with the mono mix of the drums. I guess uh, Bill had referenced a Motown song that he heard. And when I do my home recordings on my equipment, which we didn't do this time, we brought equipment in, but when I work on my own, I don't have enough tracks to go stereo anyway, but that's sort of my preference. I think when I was saying about everything having its unique space and things don't overlap, so having the mono drums definitely adds to that uh, equation. But you still have like a separate kick mic, right? You're not just like putting a mic in front of the kit to, for that. Well, everything was mic separate. But uh -huh. when we mixed and panned the instruments, they were all together. But it was all recorded. Each uh, drum was recorded separate. We recorded basically the way you normally would record. But it was uh, the approach to the mixing, I guess, that was kind of unique. I guess I'd also read that you had insisted from the beginning that you, you want to do the production yourself, right, from the first album, that you at least had to, maybe you could have a co-producer if they made you, but... Yeah, yeah, that's something that's real important to us. We did our first session with a producer early on for the uh, Orc Records label. He said, we'll take a break, you guys go out to dinner, and when you come back, I'll have a rough mix ready. And we came back, and it was just so foreign to what I had imagined the way it was going to sound that we kind of decided right then and there that no, we really need, uh, since we do have definite ideas and we 
know what we want. We really we need to be in control of this and do the production ourselves. It's, it goes along with everything. You know, you write the song, you arrange it, and record it. There's no reason to bring someone in to impart their taste or whatever on it. Well, I guess unless you don't care about the technical aspects, unless you're just, we're interested in being a tight band, and then please take the rest off our hands. There are plenty of folks I've talked to that are just not that interested in the recording process. They don't have that strong taste, and so let them do what they want to package it. We were always, right from the beginning, really uh, interested in recording, and just speaking for myself, that's where I feel most comfortable, and my favorite part is making records. So is the point, though, to capture the energy of the live group performance, you know, warts and all? No, because you're just like chasing after something you'll never achieve. It's just something about a live show. It's different every night. Sounds different every night. Every song's different. There's no way you could ever capture on a record what it's like to be at the show. So it's like, why even bother? Well, I guess I meant more the live in the room. I raise this in particular because like the intro to this song, it's interesting when the drums come in, they're kind of out of time for like the first three beats and then they lock in. And I actually really like that because when they do lock in, it's kind of, oh, like it's very satisfying. But that's, you know, the normal kind of thing that if you're doing with a producer, they would not let you do that. They like, okay, we kind of screwed up the intro there. Let's do that again. But it seemed like this was a conscious decision that the performance, the integrity of the performance as a whole, that natural moment was something to preserve rather than to digitally fix or or punch in or, or do a different take. Yeah, I agree. What's really missing from records nowadays, I think, is that element of imperfection. Rock and roll is always about things kind of rubbing up against each other and that creating tension and release, and it's all what gives it the excitement when you're listening. Well, let's get the second song on the board here, also from the current album. It's actually just the song right after it on the record, Gone, 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 a little more intense. Can you say a little about how this one came together? I don't recall anything unusual about it. It just kind of came together. Was this a co-write? Let me ask that. Yeah. Okay. So in that case, does that mean... How does the co-writing actually work with the two of you? Are you sitting together with guitars? No, Bill sent... Um, Over the mail. <laughs> Bill, Bill sent a CD of a whole bunch of ideas. I think there were about a dozen. And I'll just put that on and listen, and certain songs will immediately bring to mind. Usually it's either a melody or a guitar part, or just whatever kind of sparks my creative flow the quickest is what I'll gravitate toward. I narrowed it down transfer that to my recorder what he said was basically just well it was actually just his guitar so for me to make it more of a song by adding the vocals and my guitar i found it helpful to put a drum track down so that would be the first thing i'd do and then i'd start usually doing guitar stuff and usually the vocals would come last and i wound up pretty much putting everything on bass and percussion only in that it helped me when I'm doing the vocals because the more I fully realize the song sounds, the easier it is to hear like the finished version, which is how I approach the vocals, like where that fits in. It just makes it easy for me the more the song is complete to finish it with the vocal. All right, so even this percussion stuff near the end, that was kind of part of your initial demo in terms of... On that particular song, I'm not sure exactly what was on the demo, but that one we did come up with a lot of percussion stuff later on for the end because we kind of extended it. That one we didn't stick as close to the demo. In some cases, we actually used the demo, but in that one, 
everything was redone, re-recorded. All right. So we have, again, just like uh, the first tune, you've got some 
in this case, it's scrapey string sounds before the main guitar comes in. I like that. You know, a lot of the songs on this album, they really set an atmosphere that you have this static that goes between ears and at the beginning have been replaced. It's okay. We're setting up that this is about the radio, although I thought it was just guitar amp hum. And when I initially heard that, we felt that kind of stuff was real important, kind of setting up the mood for the song. And, uh, the first version of the intro actually sounded more like static. So I went back and uh, found a section that was a little more closely related to the sound of the radio. So it's little details and a lot of attention to the small stuff, but it, we kind of feel it adds up to the final finished product. So you were saying that you added the lead guitar lines and the vocals kind of in the same pass. Or do, you, do you see those pretty much as just two parts of the melody. It's not like, now I'm opening up and jamming on guitar. No, you're just playing a melody on guitar, it seems, when you do most of your solos. On this record, there's probably a little bit less improvising, maybe. Usually it's about half and half. Half are written ahead of time and half are improvised. But I think on this one, a little bit more were uh, written ahead of time. Like improvised in the context of the whole band performing at the same time, so that if you... (laughs) Or improvised after the fact... (laughs) After the fact, although on Time for Witness, we did use some of the solos that were done on the basic track when the whole band was playing live. But for the most part, a lot of my guitar gets overdubbed, especially the leads. So you've got a nice separated sound where everybody is wearing, the whole band is wearing headphones, so everything is still not bleeding onto the drum track and you can swap out things. For this record, that was one of our concerns. Small room, it's not soundproofed. Bill wanted to approach his guitar recording the same way he did at home, which was this particular technique. I first heard about it when reading about the uh, recording of Peggy Sue. Norman Petty put a mic on the guitar as well as the amp, and he mixed that in. When Bill recorded at home, I think he used one mic positioned between the amp and the guitar. So that created a really unique guitar sound, and we wanted to try to recapture that. So he was in a different room. My guitar, a lot of it, we didn't really wind up using anyway, but it wasn't really separate. But it didn't leak into the room. The bass was direct. So basically, the only sound within the room was the drums. It turned out that Bill's guitar mic picked up too much of the drums, so we couldn't actually use a lot of the uh, mic guitar, which was our original intention. So in those cases, we went back and took the uh, guitar from the demo. Which in this case was electric, right? This is gone, gone, gone. So he's not in a room with an acoustic with a mic on it and then the drums 20 feet away, not... (laughs) Well, his guitar... uh wasn't an acoustic. It, okay, it captures right. an acoustic quality. He's got an electric acoustic guitar, so the amp has the pickup and the mic is picking up the uh, guitar, but it doesn't project nearly as much as an acoustic guitar would. So it's not an acoustic guitar sound, but it's close, I guess. Some people might perceive it as an acoustic. I've done that with playing with loud drums in a room using a direct from my classical acoustic as well. So that works okay. I, I never like the sound as much just putting a mic on it, or at least being able to mix that mic sound into the pickup sound. But if you want to do the live thing, that's kind of the compromise you have to make. You could always uh, take that direct guitar and feed it through some speaker and record the ambience to add that to room sound to the mix. Ah, I know in the same kind of setup, like if we do have a guitar amp, it's often 
can we put it basically like in the closet so that it is in its own space? It's separate from the drums, but you can still run a chord to it. Or are you using a direct inject fake amp or something? <laughs> Tell me again how you were recording the, the electric here live with the drums. Just the amp was in another room. How was that actually physically set up? We had Bill's amp, yeah, in a separate room. Okay. And he was in, like, Brenda and Stan and myself were in the big room, the main room. Bill was in one room, and then his amp was in the third room. Okay, so he can't actually see you. That's right. Okay. So the percussion is one of the most fun things, you know, consistently about your bands. And I know even in the first album, when you only, in the official lineup, only had Anton playing drums there, there's always these claves or jingle bells or something going on. But the fact that they're restrained, that in this song, you don't really hear them until this end part where you've had the bridge and you're going to, uh, it's just basically in the outro. How choreographed is this kind of thing? How do you figure out, so the percussionist doesn't just play all over everything? The parts are written the same way you'd write a guitar part or a background vocal or, or any part, really. Um, I guess the main thing early on, we didn't really like our original drummer used a lot of cymbals, and we found that they interfered with a lot of the tones on the guitar, so we suggested he use less cymbals. That opened up a lot of space, and we thought we could fill up that space with percussion. And then, you know, we don't like a lot of fills, typical drum fills and stuff, so percussion will take that place of those a lot of times. Used various ways, I guess, uh, texture and sometimes just to add more energy to move something along a little bit. You go to a chorus and have a maraca come in and pick it up slightly. So it's to expand the dynamic range a little bit and add different texture and different tones and might want a little high end if the snare's a little dark sounding, a tambourine playing along, you know, adds a little high end to that. And, you know, it really varies uh, from part to part and song to song. Sure. A structurally interesting thing about this one is that, I mean, it sounds like the gone, gone, gone part is the chorus. I mean, it's a pretty quick chorus and it turns back to the verse pretty quick. But then you hit this, what's the bridge, where you do this thing that could be the chorus in another song. This da 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 Like this is the happy part and it only happens three times and then you're back to, that seems like a fairly typical thing like that. If you're good, it makes it more powerful when you whip out the happy little bit if it happens just <laughs> like this rather than, uh, you know, that's the chorus and we play it three times and it's long. It's not something that's really conceptualized. It's just spontaneous, a lot of it. It's, um, can't explain really uh, the process too much and wouldn't want to, uh, even if you could, you know, there's a certain uh, mystery involved. I don't even understand it, you know, where songs yeah. come from, where, where ideas come from. It's just... It clearly comes, I think, again, one of you in that other interview had said that you're, you know, you're more likely to remove a chorus than add a chorus, that it's just part of the taste, that there's something... Just like this thing you're complaining about at the radio, well, you know, what would one complain about? It's so, I don't know if crass is the word, but, you know, it's manipulative. It's like a commercial. Whereas if you're a little more ginger with the choruses like this, then uh, I don't know if it what the effect is. It's not like it's more authentic or something, but it's just, it's uh, less cheesy. Or less of a cliche. Because if you hear something often, then it's just, yeah, like you said, a lot of times it's more about what you leave out than what you put in. 
Speaking of things that are not cliche song structures, let's bring in our third song. I picked one of the ones from Incidental Hum, your 2015 solo album. Uh, I like this one, Laramie, which struck me as, as the most, I don't know, like one of those Brian Eno ambient tracks, you know, just this, uh, or Frippertronics. Well, there's this drone use of Ebo, of the electronic bow. When did you get into that? It really opens up a whole new soundscape. I've been using an Ebo since they invented it. The idea of that endless sustain on the guitar is uh, really appealing, so I always gravitated toward that. I actually tried out early on, there was a product called the Gizmotron. I think they recently relaunched it. Tiny wheels that rotated and vibrated, just pushed up against the strings. It didn't work out too well. It wasn't really, um, I think they rushed to production didn't work out all the bugs on it, but yeah, as soon as I found out about Evo, I got one and really been using it ever since. So do you want to say any more about how the tracks on Incidental Hum were put together? Were these, you know, pretty spontaneous studio experiments, like with Laramie in particular? In particular, there's not really that much to say about that song. There's a lot to say about the record. Probably just take up a half an hour just talking about how it came about and the, the different things that went into it. and. Well, let's play the song, and then then you can tell us more about the record.
since I have a studio here and I'm able to record, and it's my favorite thing to do, I record all the time. When I don't have a song to demo, I'll often record cover song, a song that I always liked, uh, inspired me when I was younger and starting to play, and just done various things. And I didn't have new songs, but I really had the urge to record. So I thought, well, that really shouldn't stop me. I could just go down and improvise and start with nothing and see where that takes me. And also, I guess simultaneous to that was reflecting back on a period early on in the feelies and just before the feelies of listening to and being inspired by groups like Eno and Kraftwerk and Philip Glass, things that had a lot more keyboard and David Bowie's Low album was, was real big inspiration. So it was yeah. the idea of to kind of explore that a little bit. So the first experiment went well and that got the ball rolling and I did a few more. And then I realized early on that when I listened back to the songs, they would invoke a certain visual image in my mind. And I thought these are kind of like soundtracks to a movie that is, you know, in my mind or whatever. And then from there, I had the idea, well, what if I start with the image and score it like actually like it would be a film where I think of a particular place and then write accordingly. So then I did that on some of the songs as well. And then the third thing that happened was I found some old cassettes that had some instrumental stuff that I had done maybe 10 years before and kind of forgot about. So I transferred those as well and did some work on that. And little by little, it just uh, kind of evolved into like a whole instrumental record. And I didn't even think of it as a record. It was just a bunch of instrumental stuff. And I gave a copy to our manager, and he got real excited about it. And he encouraged me to put it out. So, Yeah, it does often seem like the kind of thing, this is not sort of logically, if you're going to do the thing that your audience most wants you to do, <laughs> this would not be the thing that would come to mind, but it's just, so it starts as something that's personal and, you know, you put enough of your heart into it, then you find like, wow, okay, people actually like it just as much as anything else I've done. The Willies actually started out very similar circumstance where uh, Bill and I would just, it was right after we first got our four track recorder and we would just totally improvise we'd get together almost every day really and and just make these very soundtracky kind of tapes a lot of it was by changing tape speeds and manipulating sounds and being really experimental so uh i think it was kind of inspired by that as well and just to talk a little bit about this specific tune i mean you've got the just the fact that you saved the drums until the very end that is an actual drum kit, right? I mean, the kick drum sounds almost like it has too much pitch to be a regular kick drum. Is that? Oh, boy, I don't even remember. Um, <laughs> okay. A lot of the drums that sound like drum machine are real drums, and some of the ones that sound real are drum machine, and a lot of them are a combination of the two. When I play drums, I kind of take the Mo Tucker approach, which is uh, with mallets, and I don't use the kick drum. I use a tom-tom for the kick drum part. Hmm. So it's probably uh Tom Tom. Yes, that's definitely what I'm what I'm hearing. So is that to save you the trouble of having to train your ankle or is there some other I played drum kit a little bit, but um I guess, you know, I'm more used to my arms being a guitarist. Yeah, no, it's such a different skill. <laughs> yeah, it's not having the time to spend the time to get proficient enough to work the kick drum with my foot. 
And the soundscape that is before that comes in, you know, a lot of it is Ebo. There's some keyboards. What there's kind of a high rhythmic instrument that establishes the rhythm before the sleigh bells come, come in. Is that just a guitar played high? It almost sounds like an auto harp. This stuff was recorded such a long time ago. Uh, okay. I guess the whole idea was to try to manipulate the uh, tones and the sounds to uh, just create something you might not normally hear. So it probably is a guitar. It's just EQ'd in some strange way. I know like Lindsey Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac, some of his little guitar parts, they sound like they could be keyboard or they could be auto harp or some strange harpsichord. <laughs> Who knows? Like I said about some of the real drums sounding like a drum machine, it's a lot of the keyboards sound like guitar and the guitars sound like keyboards. And a lot of them are mixed together on the same part. But all of it was actually played, not programmed, right? Yeah, right. It seemed particularly with this one that you don't, I mean, yeah, you have a constant rhythm. Would you even bother to use a click track for this kind of thing? Or would you just, okay, we're, we just are going. Uh, typically I, I record with not really a click track. I'll pick like, some drum pattern. Mm -hmm. I have a bunch of different drum machines and I'll pick something sort of in the realm of what I'm looking at rhythmically and then start recording stuff. And then typically by the end that's gone or it's been mutated so much that it doesn't resemble in any way the original track. Sure. Yeah. I've had so many recordings where if you listen closely, you can hear the metronome that was in my headphones that has bled on to at least the intro of the track that a number of times I've just, you know, record the metronome or whatever it is as its own track. And then maybe some of that stays. Maybe you put enough delay on it. Who knows? Probably it'll be gone, but. Well, yeah, that's the excitement and the beauty of recording that it's so uh, adaptable and open to experimenting and you can go any which way and there aren't any rules. And, you know, it's like a uh, laboratory or something. You just go down and experiment. That's the fun of it. Do you remember with this one, sort of what was the skeleton in terms of the, the chords? Was it, I've got this drum pattern going and I'm going to play just a simple back and forth between a couple chords and that's going to be, you know, and then improvise on that a little bit. And that's at least going to provide a foundation or was it more, I'm just going to sustain some Ebo notes, you know, do some kind of more straight up atmospheric stuff. And that was the beginning of the song. Do you recall with this one? I don't recall, but I don't think I ever started with too abstract of a part. It would typically be something that would include the chord changes, and if there is no chord change, then it, it would uh, usually be one of the main things, I think. Um, sure. You know, each one is different. Some songs I kind of more clearly remember the writing process, but that one really uh, don't have a lot of memories for it's not quite like the ambient, not that I know how the Brian Eno ambient albums were written, but, you know, since a lot of it is, you know, a sustained synth note that goes for a long time and then shifts to another thing, you know, it really is the atmospheric stuff is the, the bread and butter of it. But it sounds like you're a little more song oriented in your bones. So you're at least going to start with some rhythm and some chord changes, even if it doesn't become an actual whole song per se. Yeah, there was one song I remember thinking, well, this is pretty good. Maybe I could put some words on it and we could do it with the feelies. And then I realized, well, if I do that, I'm kind of ruining what it is I like about the song anyway. So I'll just leave it as the instrumental. Yeah, I think I noticed that with Cheyenne, the second or third track, it, which actually sounds a little like the Like Yesterday song, which is one of the Wake Ulu ones that I also was uh, 
we're not going to talk about, but I had prepped it up so we could if we weren't eating enough time, but we're, we're fine. You know, so it starts like it could be one of your band songs, but then because you don't do that, because you don't add the vocals, then you can take it in a different direction. Then you can add like an interesting little synth lead part. You know, I hear some of this has bled onto the, the new soul album, but I would also be equally unsurprised if, you know, on the new band album, I did hear more, okay, now that I've explored this, like how can I synthesize the technique that I developed on Incidental Hum with the band? And so just have longer like instrumental sections or textural sections. It seems like you're still being pretty sparse about that. It still has to sound like the feelies. I think it did have some impact doing the instrumental record. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to say. I think the main influence it had was the approach to experimenting more with the idea being we don't necessarily have to perform these songs. And in particular, the song in between, that was the last song I wrote. Hmm. And that was written with sort of a concept in mind, which is something that's unusual for a Feely song to be written conceptually. They're all totally spontaneous with a guitar, just strumming some chords, and you get some chord pattern that you find interesting, and then become eventually becomes a song. But this was sort of having the idea beforehand, and then it's a different approach. The idea was, well, I liked on Crazy Rhythms where the middle section of that song and the song forces at work where they just kind of hang on the one chord and things are going on with that. And another thing I was thinking of was I really liked the Who's Next record with Bob O'Reilly and Won't Get Fooled Again with the synthesizer. So I thought, well, it'd be nice to do like one chord where I have this kind of throbbing, pulsing loop going on. And I didn't have a looper, so I actually did it in real time. I started with the tremolo, and then I added guitar and piano to that. And then having that simulated loop allowed me to kind of improvise chords and then write the song around it. So that was the one instance where the idea came prior to the song. Well, yeah, as soon as I said that they're not so many giant instrumental sections, I remembered the, you've got the in-between reprise. That's a nine minute and then some. When I made the simulated loop, I made it on a cassette and I just did it as long as the cassette lasted and it turned out to be like eight minutes long. So when I was writing the song, about halfway through, just started kind of jamming and it went somewhere else. So I guess from there, when I was doing the mix, I took the loop out listen to it with just the vocal and the guitar. I thought, well, this this is equally interesting. I could do a completely different version with just acoustic guitar and vocals. And then I copied it and kind of just used that and then added percussion to that. And that became the acoustic version. You've got some places in your catalog, you know, these longer songs that I sort of see in the model of the Velvet Undergrounds when they would do extended jams, you know, as opposed to one of these songs from Incidental Hum, which could be quite long if you just kept going with the experimentation and the, and the textures and stuff. It seems a, a fundamentally different process between these putting something together, you know, even if it's not, you know, you're writing a symphony, it's not that kind of long because it has to say everything musically it's going to say. The interesting thing was the demo, like I said, was eight minutes long with the jam. So we knew we we wanted to take it in that direction. But I wanted it to be like really kind of fresh. So obviously when we rehearsed it, we didn't really want to 
every time rehearse it with a jam. So we rehearsed it as the acoustic version. And I don't think we ever played it as the electric version. No, as a matter of fact, I know we didn't until uh, just before we were going to record it. I kind of showed Bill the electric part literally like minutes before. And we took the cassette tape, transferred that, and then we just went for it. That jam on the end was very spontaneous, and it's also totally live, and it's first time we've ever jammed on a record. I mean, we used to jam a lot at rehearsal, but we don't really do that now because we don't have enough time. So I guess that's just to return us to the first point, the point that might have come from Dave of the analogy of, you know, we all just get together and we do this stuff as opposed to the model, which is more what I'm hearing from you, you know, the typical songwriter model that it's not just like I do this a couple times a week when I get together with friends. It's no, I'm a songwriter and I'm, this is the thing I most love to do. And I will do it at three in the morning and I will do it whenever it can come together. There's a lot to be said about having leisurely rehearsals as opposed to when bands are more professional, especially if somebody's traveling to get there, if you don't even live in the same city, then your time is so limited in a way that it sounds like, you know, when you and Bill were developing the willies or something that the effect is, is you have time to kill, that you really can explore something, you know, develop a style in a way that is maybe you don't have to do at this point because you guys are so used to each other and you're, you know, developing ideas on your own in the interim. I'm not sure what the question is, whether we'd be <laughs> more experimental if we had more time. Uh, I, I don't know. I think that's a, kind of a struggle we always kind of have to deal with, I guess, your limited time and, and how you are going to spend that time. And It seems like a significant difference between bands that are just starting, you know, when you're young and you can just be out at night for as long as you want and probably come back the next day and maybe are, are so dedicated to your music and that you can just do it with this kind of leisure time. I know some very big bands like, you know, hearing about REM recording their last bunch of albums, like they've got enough budget. They could even just do that and be that leisurely in a super high cost studio. But for the most part, when bands mature, they no longer, you know, for various logistical reasons, even just having kids and having lives and things that you don't get that we can jam for <laughs> forever until something good comes out. Yeah, that was primarily the reason we decided to record here, that we could do what we wanted. And if it didn't come out, we didn't have to use it. and We didn't have a deadline. And, uh, you know, it was all kind of an experiment, really. Okay. So you really do still have a lot of that, even though Bill is coming in remotely, that you can doing the home studio thing gives you a lot of that. Well, advantage. I think we're kind of hoping to move in that direction. I think that's mm -hmm. something we had uh, at the back of our minds. So one song, we're going to move toward our closing song, which is uh, Should Be Gone from the previous album here before 2011. One of the catchier numbers, like the more recent Feelies tunes. I know after the first album, at least, you kind of dialed your vocals back in the mix and, you know, just like the tone of that. Whenever I hear, you know, whether it's, this or Husker Du or anything where the vocals are kind of back, I wonder, what is the proper listening volume? <laughs> that is, my tendency is to at least try to like turn up the whole thing so that the vocals would be where they would be the volume of a normally mixed song, <laughs> which means the rest of it is really freaking loud. Do you think of it that way? Or is that just a, <laughs> they're actually meant to be really quiet? I think they're really different on every record. Sure. The place and it's not always 
a volume thing. One thing that I like to do when I record my stuff is kind of leave the center of the stereo spectrum just for the vocal. On this record and the stuff that I do, I put the bass just off. Look at it like the panning is like a clock. It would be just off the 12 o'clock mark and the drums the opposite, just slightly. So you don't even really perceive it that way, but it uh, allows for the vocal to be heard without bringing it up in volume. The idea is that we don't want the vocal to be separate from the music. A lot of times I'll hear a mix, I'll listen to a record, and it just sound like the band with, and then the vocals like on top of it. It's not part of the music. So we really have uh, always gone the opposite of that approach. Wanted to have it more uh, integrated into the music. Yeah, well, you're making me rethink this approach in favor of that direction. I, my father, who's 86 or something now, was a folk singer in like the early 60s. And so whenever I would play him anything, you know, for my whole formative years, it would always be, I can't understand the words. Make the vocal loud enough because that, that was the aesthetic as of the early 60s, like that everything else is backing. So I still, that kind of, I internalize that a lot. And I do, I, no matter how poor my lead vocal is, I feel like I it has to it has to be sitting up there as a thing that is speaking directly to you, and that you don't have to work to hear what is being said. I was surprised when I went to listen to the recent songs here and was trying to just write down what the lyrics were just by listening to it. I had actually very little trouble at all that it because of this mixing thing you're talking about or the way you're eqing it or something. Yeah, everything comes out nicely, even though you're not, you know, you can hear on the first record, it has more of a, I don't know, sometimes it sounded like Jonathan Richmond or the Buzzcocks or the guy from Joy Division, like these vocal personas that was sort of more upfront. And I want to say punk. I know that's not what you were shooting for, but that by your second album, by everything since then, it's just, it's, it's nice and smooth and part of the layering. Oh, thanks. Uh, I mean, I've heard people say they think the vocals on Crazy Rhythms are too soft, so... They could use compression. <laughs> and I heard, like, uh, about the last record, some people said their vocals were too loud. Some said they were too soft. So we just kind of put them where we think they suit the song the best. All right. Well, I've had this uh, Should Be Gone song going constantly in my head. This is one of the, the catchier ones. I'm glad to share this with the folks. Uh, any sort of closing comments in terms of where you guys were at with this previous record here before as compared to what we've been talking about so far? The la last record was, there was a lot of excitement, enthusiasm on the part of the band because we had just reunited and a lot of stuff going on. In some ways, they're no different. In some ways, they're different. I mean, depends what you're looking for. <laughs> Sure. Any thoughts about this song in particular? Was this the single or, or one of, were you even thinking those terms at this point? No, I don't remember anybody focusing on that particular track. All right. I thought it came out real well. Thank you so much for your time. Okay, good. Yeah. Be gone. 
Wonderful, wonderful talking to Glenn Mercer. Now, the Phoenix were one of these bands that I had always heard about. They were worshipped by some people. I'd probably just listened to a little of the first album, which is the most well-known Crazy Rhythms he mentioned, which is more punk, even though they were avowedly trying not to be punk. That one's quite different than the others, right? It's six years between Crazy Rhythms and the second album, The Good Earth. And that first album had, most notably, Anton Fear on the drums. You can look him up. He did a lot of stuff subsequent to that. Very interesting, hyperactive drummer. And also on that, as I mentioned, Glenn had not really worked out his vocal style. And I think there's also more vocals by Bill Million, his co-writer. I think having this kind of co-writing relationship is great. The thing that makes it harder for me to produce song after song after song is really I get sick of my own rhythm guitar style. So if you have somebody else that, at least for many of the songs, is just coming up with chord progressions, just coming up with their own guitar riffs, that then you can make into a song, you can layer your vocals on, you can come up with the melody, you can come up with the, well, in Glenn's case, the lead guitar parts. It just seems a really good formula. Well, you as a lead vocalist maybe still retain control of the overall song structure and, you know, what makes it an actual song, but don't have to supply all that raw material yourself. So again, there were that six-year gap between the first and the second album. He mentioned the band The Willies, which was him and Bill and some of the same people. That was sort of an 
interim project, and there were some other things like that. There's a whole separate project, Young Woo, that was basically the same people, but with Dave Weckerman, the percussionist, singing lead on everything, so it was just an outlet for his music. So I mentioned the interesting dual drummer setup, Stan Demeski being the kit player, for the most part, Dave Weckerman being the guy who holds the maracas or tambourine or whatever, really contributes to their unique sound. And then it was Stan, the drummer, who persisted through the 90s band Wake Ulu, which was really just because Bill had moved to Florida, so the feelies such as they were could be no more. But I definitely recommend checking those albums out, given that they came out in 94, 95, 96. They have more of that 90s grunge thing in them. The vocals higher in the mix, a little more traditional recording. I heard comparisons to Tom Petty. Anyway, pretty much anything Glenn has touched is pretty damn interesting. If you enjoyed this interview, please go subscribe to the podcast. Look us up on iTunes or go to nakedlyexaminedmusic.com. We have a Facebook page. You can follow us that way. And it'd really help if you can go to the iTunes store and give this a nice rating. We've got some great interviews coming up. Next time, Carla Kane from the Corner Laughers. Number 43 will be with Steve Wynn. 44 with Liz Gillorn. 45 with Steve Hackett of Genesis fame. And number 46 with Chandler Travis. So keep exploring new music. Until next time, this is Mark Lintonmeyer signing off. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.